1989, I was 12 years old. And I have to say, the 80s was a great time to be a kid. You millennials, you missed out. Uh, I was born in February, so in my 12th year of life, I was in grade 6 for the winter and spring term, and then grade 7 in the fall. And the summer of 89 was when I had my first summer job. Uh, I worked from a dairy farm, at a dairy farm, 12 hours a day from 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., Monday through Friday. I had actually, uh, unaccountably, I had been a little bored the summer previous when I was 11. And so I volunteered to work on this family farm, which was a 10-minute bike ride from my house. And out of the kindness of his heart, but his cheap heart, the, the farmer DeFries paid me $25 for my labor every other week, which works out to be 13 cents an hour. It's like we're into the Depression or something. <laughs> and it was hard labor, let me tell you. Every night I'd come home smelling of barn, and I would jump into the St. Lawrence River before going into the house. Uh, anyway, it, it built character. 1989, 12 years old. That was the year the Berlin Wall fell. I watched the Berlin Wall fall on live television. I knew that this was a significant epochal event. The adults on the TV were going crazy. But I didn't understand the wall's history, its purpose, its significance to the Cold War. And I think that's maybe why now I'm a bit of a Cold War buff. Uh, over the years, I think I wanted to understand better what I didn't understand then because I was just too young. And as an aside, after the wall came down, they toured 12-foot slabs, graffitied slabs all over the world. There's just, I mean, there was miles and miles of the stuff. And it came to the X here in Toronto in the summer of 1990. But I couldn't manage to break off even a crumb of concrete with my fingers as a souvenir, which I always regretted. I wanted a piece of that history. But then, when Jill and I were in London in 2015, visiting the Imperial War Museum, they had a couple slabs of the Berlin Wall out on the front lawn. So I took my car keys <laughs> and, I, and I chipped off a little chunk that I shall bequeath to my son and heir. When I was 12 years old, there were a few must-see movies. Tim Burton's Batman was at the top of the list. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was another big one. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Back to the Future Part Two. Every 12-year-old worth, worth their salt saw those movies in the theater. Uh, but that was also the year that I watched with my dad. It was just the two of us. The restored director's cut and theatrical re-release of... David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia. My father had seen it when he was 12 in 1962, and he wanted me to see it when I was 12. I didn't understand the movie right away. Uh, there was a complexity to that film that just went over my 12-year-old head. Uh, but that was the first time that I became consciously aware of the difference between an entertaining movie for kids and a movie for adults that addressed issues of the human condition, films with complex character studies. And it was after watching Lawrence of Arabia that I began uh, critiquing film, something my, my dear wife appreciates so much in our marriage now. When I was 12, I saw the last Blue Jays game ever played at Exhibition Stadium before they moved into the Sky Dome. I was a major Calvin and Hobbes fan when I was 12, and uh, I had all the books. I even collected strips from the newspaper and pasted them into a scrapbook that I had. When I was 12, I really enjoyed reading detective stories like uh, Sherlock Holmes, Encyclopedia Brown, and the Hardy Boys. Later on, I would major in criminology at Ottawa U, and I believe that was the direct influence of those books. And when I was 12 years old, 
I deliberately turn my back on God. That was the year I stopped wanting my friends to come over to our home for dinner because I was embarrassed that my mom would pray for the meal before we ate. I was 12 years old when I deliberately turned away from my profession of faith in Jesus Christ, mainly because I wanted to swear. In my 12-year-old mind, I was taking a very deliberate step. Uh, It was a sin for Christians to swear. I wanted to swear, so in order to swear, I would stop being a Christian. And with that came a conscious decision to stop living morally though I never doubted any of the teachings of Scripture. But I knew that if I died, I would go to hell. I had rejected Christ. I had rejected the free offer of his gospel, all the while believing everything the Bible taught. That was what was going on in my life at 12. Batman, Lawrence of Arabia, the Berlin Wall, Calvin and Hobbes, working on a farm, perversely and deliberately rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was happening in your life? What was happening in Jesus' life? We don't know a whole lot. We know Jesus was living in Nazareth, in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. Uh, He was undoubtedly learning his carpenter father's craft, working as his apprentice, and growing up in a home where his parents were both pious, observant Jews. And we know that at the age of 12, Jesus' constant exposure to the heritage of his people and the content of their scriptures led to this extraordinary exchange we read of in the temple uh, in Luke chapter 2. Look at verse 46 of that text. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, that is, teachers of the law of Moses, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And this story of a young Jesus in the temple is the only story of his youth among the four canonical Gospels. But this is one of those texts where the significance of this passage is, I think, easily overlooked. Uh, It's interesting. It's interesting how restrained this story is and yet how poignant, which is not the case with the various apocryphal Gospels. Beginning in the mid-2nd century, various apocryphal Gospels attempted to fill in the lost years of Jesus, of his youth. And the boy Jesus of the apocryphal Gospels is, by and large, a miracle and and magic-working Jesus, and a very angry, ill-tempered young man who kills at the drop of a hat. Let me read to you some of the infancy gospel of Thomas from the second century. This is most definitely not the word of the Lord. When this boy, Jesus, was five years old, he was playing at the, at the ford of a brook. He gathered together into pools the water that flowed by and made it at once clean and commanded it by his word alone. But the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph. He took a branch of a willow and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, You insolent, godless dunderhead, what harm did the pools and the water do to you? See, now you also shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately the lad withered up completely. And Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. But the parents of him that was withered took him away, bewailing his youth, and brought him to Joseph and reproached him. What a child you have who does such things. 
After this again, he went through the village, and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, You shall not go further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. But some who saw what took place said, From where does this child spring, since every word is an accomplished deed? And here's one more uh, example from the Arabic infancy gospel. Not the word of the Lord. One day, when Jesus was running about and playing with some children, he passed by the workshop of a dyer called Salem. They had in the workshop many cloths, which he had to dye. The Lord Jesus went into the dyer's workshop, took all these cloths, and put them into a cauldron full of indigo. When Salem came and saw that the cloths were spoiled, he began to cry aloud and asked the Lord Jesus, saying, What have you done to me, son of Mary? You have ruined my reputation in the eyes of all the people of the city, for everyone orders a suitable color for himself, but you have come and spoiled everything. And the Lord Jesus replied, I will change for you the color of any cloth which you wish to be changed. And he immediately began to take the cloths out of the cauldron. Each of them died as the dyer wished until he had taken them all out. When the Jews saw this miracle and wonder, they praised God. Now, you take that and you compare it to the account that we're considering today. And it seems almost a little bit drab, doesn't it? Uh, Which I believe speaks in favor of the account's authenticity. Luke isn't overplaying Jesus' uniqueness. His point is subtle. When you read a biography of a great person, you expect to see something in their childhood or youth which portends, which points to their future greatness. I once read a biography of Beethoven, and I learned that when Beethoven was a child, he would turn the crank that opened and closed a window in their house for hours at a time, enraptured by the squeaking it made. Now, if we did that as kids, I'm sure our parents would be deeply concerned, right? My child's insane. (laughs) But if that's the behavior of a child who goes on to write some of the greatest masterpieces of music the world's ever heard, then in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. That's just the sort of thing a latent musical genius would do, right? The window crank is consistent with what follows in Beethoven's musical life, just like if we read that Joseph Stalin enjoyed pulling the wings off flies as a boy, or Napoleon played hours and hours of chess. Yep, that's consistent. What are the first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth? They're consistent with what follows later in Luke's gospel and with what's come before in chapters 1 and 2. Look at verse 49. First words. Why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? If you look at the big picture in your bulletin for the sermon outline, Jesus recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. Jesus knows the reason why he has come part of which revolves around teaching. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, everyone has spoken about Jesus. Gabriel, Zechariah, Elizabeth, the angel of the Lord and the heavenly host, Simeon, Anna. Now it's time for Jesus himself to speak. And what he speaks of, the first thing out of his mouth, is his unique sonship to his heavenly father. That's the window crank. In this story. Let's put verse 40 aside for a moment. Look at verse 41. Every year, 
Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Again, the piety of Jesus' parents comes to the fore here, just as when Joseph and Mary dedicated Jesus in the temple when he was 40 days old. Mary and Joseph faithfully observed Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just as it's commanded in the Law of Moses. Now, Passover is one of the most holy days in the Jewish calendar. It commemorates the night when the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, those Israelites who had daubed the blood of a slaughtered lamb on the doorposts of their home. Because that lamb died, the firstborn son in the household did not die. So Jewish Passover is really a celebration of substitutionary death, a theme which runs all throughout the Bible. In fact, what the Passover lamb represents in its substitutionary bloody death both interprets and is fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. And if you were a Jewish man, you were required to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And Joseph is a good Jew, so up he goes to Jerusalem. He takes his family with him. But the journey to Jerusalem often included roads that were exploited by highway robbers. So pilgrims often traveled in large caravans for protection. A caravan would make about 20 miles a day, and so this journey to the capital would be a three- or four-day affair. Verse 42. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, what happened that year at the Passover festival, what Jesus saw, what Jesus heard, we're not told that. That's not the emphasis, even though Jesus' substitutionary death at the climax of Luke's gospel is very much tied to Passover. Uh, But Luke works out those themes later on. Verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So, only at the end of the first day of travel, when they had maybe come together for the night, that's when Joseph and Mary realized that there was a problem. And I assume this would have been a very panicky sort of realization. Is our, is our oldest boy dead in a ditch somewhere? Parental fail. <laughs> Where has he been? All sorts of emotions. Maybe even some parental accusation back and forth between Mary and Joseph. I wouldn't be surprised. So back to Jerusalem they go. Verse 46, after three days they found him which probably means it was three days total. The first day out by caravan, the second day back from the caravan, and then the third day in Jerusalem searching for their son. And where do they eventually find their oldest son? In the temple courts, sitting among the teachers of the law, listening to them and asking them questions. And this is the only account in Luke where Jesus takes instruction from religious leaders Uh, from religious teachers, he's the listener. Jesus isn't instructing, as some popular renditions of the the event suggest. No, he's, he's entering into discussion with these teachers. Jesus is a young man. He's on the cusp of adulthood, but with a thirst to understand and discuss spiritual questions. He's 12 years old. But his questions are so penetrating, they're so insightful and powerful, that they generate astonishment on the part of the great teachers who surround him. His questions show deep wisdom. His questions show clarity. They show precision of thought. 
and he gives answers that are staggering to the minds of these experts. Verse 41, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, the point of this passage is not to make us think Jesus is a theological genius. Nor is it that he's God incarnate. The God who knows everything. The omniscient God. So of course he can, he can easily blow the minds of these religious teachers. The main point of the passage is something else entirely. And it's wrapped up with Jesus' response to his parents. But before we unpack that, it might be helpful to consider just for a moment some, some basic Christology. Some theology about Jesus Christ. Uh, Christology is a study of the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, what we need to understand, beloved is the nature of Jesus, his dual nature. If you look at your handout, you can see this, the dual nature of Christ. The eternal Son of God took to himself a truly human nature. By means of Mary's virginal conception, God the Son, without ceasing to be who he is, the second person, of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son and Word of God, took into union with his divine nature in the one divine person of the Son, our human nature. And so it will be for all eternity. Christ's divine and human natures remain distinct and retain their own properties, yet they are eternally and inseparably united together in one person. So, Yes, this boy in the temple is fully God. And he is also fully man. The virginal conception made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. It's one of the great, great mysteries of the Christian faith. But we must never forget, Jesus had a human mind. The fact that Jesus, Luke 2.52 increased in wisdom says that though he says that he went through a learning process just like all other children do he learned how to eat how to talk how to read how to write that ordinary learning process was part of the genuine humanity of jesus christ jesus wasn't doing quantum mechanics in his head for fun as he lay in his cradle he wasn't born toilet trained It's not a denial of basic Christology to say that Jesus sometimes took faulty measurements of pieces of wood in his shop and he cut in the wrong place and he had to start over. Bruce Ware, in his book, The Man Christ Jesus, raises a very important question. Just what accounts for the remarkable questions, answers, and understanding that Jesus evidenced in his conversations with these learned men in the Jerusalem temple? How's Jesus doing that? I think many of us in the conservative evangelical tradition might have a ready answer. We would just say instinctively, the reason Jesus has such a remarkable understanding of the law of Moses is that he is God in human flesh, right? I mean, these Pharisees uh, and these teachers of the law, they don't understand who they're dealing with. They're like gunslingers going up against Clint Eastwood in one of those old spaghetti westerns. They're going to get shot down. If they only knew the truth... The truth that this 12-year-old boy was none other than the incarnate God. Then they would understand that his wisdom comes from being God. Now, 
There's a good desire to be faithful there. Christians want to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ, but that's not what Luke wants us to see here. Look at the bookends to this text, verse 40 and then verse 52. Verse 40, And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Verse 52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's the bookend, right? Amazingly, what both of these verses indicate is that Jesus' wisdom is not a function of his divine nature. It's the expression of his growth as a human being. And I think a compelling reason for seeing this growing wisdom as human wisdom is that Luke speaks of Jesus as growing wisdom while also becoming stronger physically. He ties the two together. Look at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. Verse 50, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Do you see how he ties them together? Growth in wisdom and physical growth. So that he would have to be, that would have to be human wisdom, not divine, because obviously the divine nature does not grow in wisdom. It does not decline in wisdom. Like all God's essential attributes, it's infinitely full and perfect. So as a boy, Jesus learned. He learned through the instruction of his parents from the teaching of the rabbis in his hometown in Nazareth, and through his own reading of God's word. It was by these means Jesus grew and increased in wisdom, just like the rest of us. And one other very important clue that Luke has in mind, the growing human wisdom of Jesus, is a brief but illuminating statement he gives in verse 40. After he observed that Jesus as a child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, he comments, and the favor of God was upon him. Although, We can't be completely sure what favor Luke has in mind. One thing is clear. Jesus' growth in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, was a result of the favor, the father's favor, shown to his son, now a boy, growing into adulthood. I think this is the father's favor in providing for his son all that he would need to grow and to develop, to fulfill the calling the father had given him. And among the ways in which he needed to grow, indeed one of the most important ways that he did grow as a, as a boy and as a young man, was his growth in understanding the truths of the word of God. Look at verse 6. After three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, this is verse 46, sorry, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But his parents were not amused. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished, not by his amazing answers. They're not thinking, wow, look at our boy holding his own in the temple courts with the teachers of the law. We're astonished. No, what they're astonished by is the fact that Jesus was totally preoccupied for three days doing this while they were worried, sick, searching for him. I'm not a parent. But I'm sure Joseph was conflicted in this moment. Should he flay his son alive or hug and kiss him? What are you doing, son? What were you thinking? His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Just think about that, right? Jesus had not sent word to his parents. Mom, dad. I'm going to stay back a bit in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to the temple. You go on ahead without me. It was only after they had traveled a day's journey that they realized their son wasn't with them. Is Jesus dead in a ditch? 
Has he been kidnapped by slavers? Has he been beaten and robbed? No. He's been in the temple the whole time talking to the rabbis. Which means Jesus had to find a place to sleep for two nights. He was eating someone else's food, presumably. He had slept twice and then risen to go back to the temple to talk to the teachers. While for all he knew, his parents were back in Nazareth. I can just imagine Joseph and Mary coming to Jerusalem in an absolute panic. All right, Mary, you check my uncle's house, the Tower of Hippicus, and the theater. I'll search the Kidron Valley, the marketplace, and the upper city, and we'll meet at noon at the Pool of Siloam. Jesus' absence caused his parents anguish, a point that Mary makes very plain. She says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That word is like to cause pain, to be in pain. Why have you behaved so insensitively, son? We're in pain. And with Jesus' reply, we come to the point of the whole text. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Luke's gospel. And what he says sets the stage for everything that follows. Verse 49. Why were you searching for me? He asked. It's genuine surprise. Because of who I am, there's only one place I could have been. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. But what is clear is that Jesus understands as a 12-year-old boy that his true father is not his legal human father, Joseph, but instead his heavenly father, the father who sent him into the world, the father who had given him the mission that he had come to accomplish. And Jesus being here in the temple, God's plan imposed this. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? There's, there's a necessity to this. There, there's a Greek construction here with a key term in Luke's gospel, day, D-E-I, if you're transliterating it, it is necessary. And day is used strategically in the gospel of Luke where elements of Jesus' mission are set forth. So, chapter 4, verse 43. But he said, I must, day, it is necessary, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent by my father. Day, it is necessary. 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But this is the only use of that word, day, in reference to Jesus' relationship to the Father. Jesus' parents must, must, must understand, they must understand his mission. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they don't understand. Not yet. They search and they search. And they finally find him in the temple. Jesus basically tells them, you shouldn't have had to search at all, guys. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And a big point of the whole passage probably lies in the contrast between your father and my father. Mary says, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus replies, you should have known I would be at the house of my father. In other words, Jesus has chosen this crucial stage in his life. He's on the brink of manhood, 
to tell his parents in an unforgettable way that he knows who his real father is and what it will mean for his mission. Look at the big picture again. Jesus recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. It will mean, as Simeon said to Mary back in chapter 235, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And this sword, it's a big broad sword, refers to the pain or sorrow Jesus will bring to his mother in undertaking the ministry of his heavenly father. A ministry that Mary obviously does not fully understand. A ministry which will result in her son's death. But Jesus must follow the calling given to him by his heavenly father, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. And it's in this way Luke sets the stage for the adult ministry of the Son of God, which begins about 18 years later in Luke chapters 3 and 4. But this account is the creaking window crank. Verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Which is an astonishing concept if you stop to think about it. The the God-man submitting himself to two sinful human parents as he lives in a house full of sinners. What a constant flow of temptation to be impatient must have existed in Jesus' life. Nevertheless, Jesus was obedient to his parents. And just as an aside, if Jesus, the God-man, was obedient to his parents... So our children need to be obedient to us. Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3.20 Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' lordship of the home is exercised when children obey their parents and when parents teach their children to obey. When parental obedience is required of children. This pleases the Lord. Because the way God has determined things is that children come under the authority of their parents. Certainly not the state. Nor are we letting children rule themselves, setting their own little self-actualizing agendas. Family life is not a democracy. Now, these freedom borders, they expand as children age in all sorts of ways. But mom and dad have a God-given authority over the children in their care, and the husband is the head of the wife. That's the God-ordained structure of the home, in the home. In conclusion, let me bring us back to something important that's related to the dual nature of Jesus Christ, uh, if, if we really think about it, the fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, became a man and joined himself to human nature forever, that is 
by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing even than the resurrection of Jesus. More amazing even than the creation of the universe. That little diagram in your bulletin handout is the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. What do we sing at Christmas? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. But why did this happen? Why was this necessary? There are multiple reasons. In God's sovereign decree, the dual nature of Christ accomplishes a number of good things related to our salvation, but I'm going to zero in on just one. I want to take 10 minutes to explain this from another text, a text outside Luke's gospel, and then we'll close. Because I don't want us leaving here today merely astonished that the eternal Son did such a thing. I want us all to leave here today rejoicing in its ultimate end, having believed God's word. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. This is the Apostle Paul writing. For there is one God. And Christians confess that unashamedly. We did that this morning. There is only one God, though he is an astonishingly complex God. One God eternally coexisting in three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This one God is the God who is there. He is the God who created the universe, our Savior, the architect of our salvation, and he has no divine competitors. For there is one God, verse 5, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, that sounds very exclusivist. And it certainly has an exclusive component, which we'll come to in a second. But I want us to notice the massive principle of inclusiveness first. If there is but one God then he must be the God of all, whether he's recognized as being such or not. There is only one God, which means the people of the world are not divided into geographical regions with a local deity assigned to each people group and locale. There are no gods, small g gods, of individual ethnic or cultural groups. Those so-called gods exist only in people's imaginations. They do not exist. There is only one God. Therefore, as Paul commands back in verse 1, the church earnestly prays for all people. That's the corollary of God's oneness. Look at verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. It naturally follows because there is one God over all people, then the church prays for all people. The church's prayers are to be very inclusive. 
Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But at the same time, there's an exclusiveness implied in Paul's logic here, isn't there? Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Therefore, if there is only one mediator between the one God and his rebellious fallen image bearers, then our only hope lies in that one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. New City, that's right teaching that's going to produce right living. The right living of urgent, bold evangelism and courageous prayer. And of course, implications abound for any here today who have not bowed the knee to Christ Jesus in repentant faith. Friend, it needs to be asked, do you think of your relationship with the one God in these sorts of terms? Do you see your relationship with your creator as requiring mediation? Does a mediator need to broker a peace treaty between you, the sinner, and the one holy God of the universe. The Bible says that we've all been alienated from God by our sin. All of us. Our moral rebellion against God, our outrageous anarchy against his rightful rule over every aspect of our existence. God is justly angry with us that we've kicked over his rightful throne in our hearts and replaced our love and our allegiance to him with love and allegiance to the things of this world. The Bible calls that sin the sin of idolatry. And all this sin has alienated each of us, every one of us from God. And we need someone to come between God and ourselves and bring us back to him. We need a mediator Someone who can represent us to God and God to us. And the Bible teaches us that there's only one person who can ever, ever fulfill that requirement. Not a priest, not a saint, the man, Christ Jesus. Because Jesus represents both parties. He is fully God and he is fully man. That's the key. And as mediator, Jesus stepped between God and sinful humanity to make possible a new relationship between the two parties. All through his death on the cross, his death as the God-man. The Bible says that salvation is linked solely to Jesus. There are no other God-men waiting in the wings, who can fulfill Jesus' wrath-absorbing mediatorial function. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, when we think of paying a ransom, we probably think of paying money to kidnappers. That's our cultural context. But as it's sometimes thought, Jesus didn't pay a ransom price to Satan. 
The ransom that he gave was himself up in death, and he did this on behalf of all people, all people without distinction, which means it doesn't matter the color of your skin, what tribe you belong to, the language you speak, your sexual orientation, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your intelligence, your education. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. What an astonishing truth. The eternal son, he left the glories of heaven. He took on our human nature for one ultimate, pervasive, and central purpose. To bear the sins we committed. And to die the death that we deserve. Because he knew that only in this way would we be saved. Sinner, marvel at this love. Marvel at this sacrifice and worship this God. Become a man. Amen.